Distoblicans of the world. I'm Raul Guerrero, and I welcome you to the Dystopian Republic. The mid-afternoon of July 12, 1986 is where today's story will begin. All was sunny and bright for a part of Desierto del Sureste, where parched mulberry and almond trees encircled an extensive property that had a castle at its donut hole-like center. Armed patrols, parked turtle-like vehicles, trigger-happy snipers, and dim sensor lights littered the Gothic fortress as Gregorio III and Gregoria arrived in force with Roscoe Jr., Wynne, Adoline, McKinley, Nicola, Consuela, Hudson, Gilly, Isidro, and Cornette in tow. For the Nunez kids, Roscoe Sr. and Skye's deaths were no less fresh on their minds at that point than when they first discovered their parents' lifeless bodies. Gregorio told the Ten that they were here to watch their steps out and breathe in their real forever home. Cornette frowned at the castle's advancedly aged blackish-gray walls, refusing to see it as anything other than a hell to be escaped from. The shambles McKinley's spirits were still in prevented her from finding hope in a situation where it was needed more than ever. Gregorio barked at his troops to shackle the kids at once and make it forceful and painful so that its purpose as a dissuasion can be fulfilled. Consuela panicked as guards snatched her wrists and ankles, resisting as Gregoria repeated that doing so was futile. Cornette elbowed in the right cheekbones of the guards, restraining him, horrifying Gilly into begging her brother to stop as he ran for the greenish-yellow. Hudson quickly turned away, clenched his teeth, and auditorily tuned out, expecting a graphic retaliation. Made brave by the sudden escape attempt, Isidro sucker-punched the guards holding him as well as three more nearby and tried to lose them in the whitish-pink. Nicola was pulling for his brothers to successfully evade, but Adeline wondered where those two could possibly go. As it turned out, there was no refuge for Cornette or Isidro to run into or hide in for miles to Gregorio's immodest glee. The brothers' runs reached the 30-yard mark when an inch-long hypodermic needle flurry viciously halted them. Cornette and Isidro fell down at weights heavier than concrete slabs on dirt and velocities equal to how blood shot out of where the gust hit them. Their falls drove a number of the needles deeper into their bodies and even some out the other side. Twelve guards drew their rifles and carefully approached Cornette and Isidro in two six strong groups. Wearing puncture-proof gloves, they carried the brothers 
like incapacitated hounds back to the entrance point for the other Nunezes to stare at. The failed escapes broke apart Isidro's aplomb like a vase, but didn't dim Cornette's furious resolve. A single lumen. Consuela crazily called Gregorio, Gregoria, and Arminians effing animals for mangling her brothers. Her head-severing yells were difficult for Roscoe not to be desolated by, but Wynne's wide-open eyes and feeble scowl hit a rage that progressed above zero percent. Gregorio didn't let Consuela get to him, but Gregoria was so hurt by what she called her and him that she screamed for everyone to shut up. His sister anxiously had Isidro and Cornette strapped in the infirmary and the other kids thrown in the hole between bright summer sky and dark hollow cylinder. The contrast was acute and nearly absolute. Nicola viewed what happened to Isidro and Cornette as a setback that mustn't level his will to get out. McKinley trembled her look at the sky as if it teased her brain with a bright color that shined like it enjoyed rubbing its happiness in. Any hope Adeline had of escaping her imprisonment had disappeared, compelling her to rethink her unwillingness to bend the knee to Gregorio and Gregoria. Roscoe Jr. spoke for himself and his siblings when he yelled that the Nunezes will remain united for as long as their parents were with them in spirit. Wynne said that the family's ties won't sever and overstretch even in death, for it will continue in heaven. Nicola added that the Nunezes have the protection of God himself, whereas people like the Lobos have no one to protect them as Satan will dispose of them once their usefulness runs out. From a media room, Gregorio and Gregoria heard every single thing said due to their castle's live surveillance of the whole and infirmary. So focused on the task at hand, they ignored the urgent alert Idzaso sent to their castle that concerned the civil war effort in Desierto del Sureste, requesting that immediate action be taken. Gregorio stopped Gregoria from wrathfully pressing an alarm much worse than the one used at Sierra Provincial Penitentiary. He knew the permanent damage its whistle was capable of inflicting will cost them their chance to convert the kids. Gregorio and Gregoria struggled into the ladders. Anger chilled from hot to warm, convincing her to save her emotions for what she and her brother were going to reveal. Speakers circled the whole and infirmary to ensure that no Nunez kid would be denied the opportunity to have their very identities changed. Lights from both places shot out as portions of wall opened 
allowing monoscope-like lenses to extend out of the openings. Gregorio welcomed the kids to a presentation he and his sister have waited years to showcase. His festive tone provoked Wynne into telling him that it doesn't matter what he or Gregoria say because it won't sway her or her brothers and sisters one MFing bit. High on his slight hubris, Gregorio told her that she'll be singing a much different tune by presentations and and so will her siblings, but he said that it'd be better he show rather than tell, then started the showcase by asking the kids what they remember Roscoe Sr. and Skye being like, urging them not to hold back on their answers. Roscoe Jr. admired how his parents shielded him and his siblings from modern society's evils and scourges. One story that'll never leave him was about the night thieves shot up their ex-home in Circletown to steal the bottle Gabino Sr. rewarded Roscoe Sr. and Sky with for their impeccable valor in Amorifrica. Rather than imperil themselves and their kids over a gift, Roscoe's parents simply let the intruders run away with what they were after, although he and his siblings were too young to remember that ordeal, the story was so impactful that it made them feel as if they could recall that burglary from the initial knock on the door to the hasty drive away. Roscoe Sr. and Skye saw the bottle as a luxury that could be replaced, but viewed their children as blessings from God. Neither parent lived to know of the priceless treasures packed within their former gift or people who crafted them. Roscoe Jr. concluded that while his parents had wants like everyone else, at no point did they ever let those feelings blind them from putting him and his siblings first. Finding that response rather interesting, Gregorio asked if any other Nunez would like to speak as they too will be listened to without interruption. Wynne brought up the day she and her siblings were born and said that it almost didn't happen, tickling Gregoria's heart with fingers that smelled of laundry dirtier than trash steaming in the desert sun. Gregorio wanted to cut the story short and begin the revealing, but held back to let the smoke have its moment with the mirror. His belief was that granting such a success would make taking it away at the press of a button all the more imposing, but there was still an issue standing beside him, and it wanted to turn a possibility into a certainty. Unlike her attempt to set off the alarm, Gregorio wasn't able to prevent Gregoria from pressing the big button to its right. Every crack and crevice in the hole and infirmary was sealed in a single mass of slamming presses. Fire sprinklers popped out of the former's ceiling and ladders 
horizontal walls, showering the kids in an indigo liquid that stained like oil paint and smelled worse than death. The stench was so overpowering that no room or corner of the castle was free of its diabolically foul aroma. Gregorio watched the kids violently wretch, wail their voices away, and go into spasms reminiscent of imploding psyches in awe. Even he didn't realize how powerful the liquid really was until his sister unleashed it, being too afraid to do it himself after hearing tale after tale of how it tore apart whole societies. Gregoria told her brother that the liquid was more of a potion that Habsburgo Sr.'s mate Sajonia accidentally created in the midst of their fight to maintain power. Intended to be a deadly poison, Sajonia mistaken watery sewage for a copious black chemical that was supposed to make her concoction a deadly one. The potion turned indigo instead of teal and was void of its killing quality but garnered a somewhat similar ability. Gregoria would like to go on about what the new concoction could do but thought that its effects on the kids will speak louder. Little did Gregorio know that the liquid sprang out wasn't the same one Sajonia made all those decades ago as his sister didn't have the chemicals necessary to remake the potion. And so Gregoria filled in the gaps with other ingredients resulting in a final product that was still indigo in color. The showers went on for an hour and the three after let the potion that didn't go down the floors' drains rest on the kids long enough to wetten them and their clothes in an oily frigidity that reminded them of human waste after a prolonged soak in heavy rain. Gregoria got over her shock on her own but had to snap Gregorio out of his to get him to go on with his presentation. Her brother asked her what purpose unleashing the liquid so soon had in converting the kids, adding that it would have been preferable to begin the showers after the fact and not before it. Gregorio grew irritated that Gregorio still didn't get it and said he was mistaken to believe that it made sense to give them knowledge that'll be soaked out of them shortly after, but assumed that his fear of carrying out the showers distracted him from this fact. Her brother didn't take too kindly to his sister, calling him a wuss, trying to backslap her for questioning his manhood. Gregoria grasped Gregorio's hand, a millisecond shy of it, touching her face, constricting it to a pain that had him desperately apologizing. She rudely released her grip and warned him not to try that S-word again if he had no plans to wear a pirate's hook for the rest of his life. Gregorio told Gregoria that he understood, trembling his fingers until she asked 
him what he was waiting for, then ordered him to get on with the presentation. The kids had looks duller than the most epitomizing gray pointing up at the life picture as if it was a source of fascination they didn't understand. Pleased by those gazes, Gregorio started the presentation by zooming way out to make visible the ten Amerifrican birth certificates he slapped on a big white table. He asked the kids if the papers look familiar, describing them as proof that they were the babies Sky brought into the world thanks to Roscoe Sr. on April 20th, 1970. The kids were born at the following times. Roscoe Jr., 551, Wynn, 609, Ottoline, 836, McKinley, 1040, Nicola, 1122, Consuela, 1243, Hudson, 1419, Gilly, 1635, Isidro, 1858, and Cornette, 1910. Gregorio commented that even the most divine miracles couldn't give Sky the strength to survive that many childbirths in so little time, calling it an occurrence only God himself could explain. During her search through the late court, Gregoria found the audio tape that told the story of the kids' births. She almost praised Roscoe Sr. and Skye for telling a tale that's as convincing as any she's ever heard or will hear. Gregoria asked if anyone was honestly immune from being tempted to get lost in dreams of emerald, umber, and watery notes. She told the kids that they'd be godly blessed to have a truly majestic place be where their births were set. This was why Gregoria found it unfortunate that a story so angelic wound up mostly being a spurious fairy tale. Not needing the kids to outwardly react to know that a bombshell had been dropped, she breathed in the shock and appall beating up their inner selves, realizing that their souls were hers to remold. Gregorio rebutted his sister by saying that the fantastical day did happen, but only three people had the blessing of experiencing it. He said that those lucky ones were Roscoe Sr., Sky, and Roscoe Jr., the father, mother, and their only child. As Gregorio revealed that secret, Etchelstone alerted him and his sister that a liberation attempt was in progress at the Southeast Vermelia Prison in McCray Beach, Desierto del Sureste. Like Idzaso, he too advised them to take action as soon as conceivably possible as their father's hold on the beach town was in doubt. Gregorio and Gregoria weren't worried about unwanted visitors crashing the presentation as their surprises will be waiting. On Bromelia's south coast and Desierto del Sureste's border with Huma del Costa Sur, McCray Beach was an artsy village where each color of the rainbow had a say. Its beachy boutiques, novelty shops, 
and seafood bistros hit a large facility in what was a small but deep lake north of town. From a bottom, the now grassy, rocky valley, only a bright, sunny sky could be seen, teasing the inmates at Southeast Bromelia Prison with the coast's briny smell. When Gregorio Jr. took power, McCray Beach became a rainbow that his regime and the Civil War turned to old lead paint chipping off. And now it was where the Black Hornets left the Yellow Jackets occupying said town with no option other than to fight for what they stole. Battles were waged in homes, shops, and out in the streets, but nowhere else was the combat more unmerciful than at the prison. Yellow Cross troops fell, slammed, and rolled dead in twos, fours, and more as Roscoe Sr. and Skye barricaded themselves in their solitary cell. Over and over again, Etchelstone told his soldiers to give their opponents every bullet at their disposal, emphasizing that McCray Beach risks being in Roy Sr.'s hands if the two escape alive. At the end of the battle at Nunez Court, Roscoe and Skye were hit by seven rounds that contained an oily paint that forcibly induced sleep. Where they stood, the two fell into impenetrable slumbers seconds after the bullets whizzed into their bodies and popped like water balloons in their dermises. Yellow Cross troops kicked the main residence's door and part of its front down, firing warning shots all the way up to the balcony. They tied Roscoe and Skye's wrists and ankles with rope and threw them to the front yard below where others of their own caught them like dodgeballs. Troops stuffed them in the backs of their special vehicles and rushed them out of the court as bullets and grenades went on like normal all the while. But from that point forward, the gunfire and explosions were cleverly looped audio recordings that were taken from earlier battles, blaring out of a surround of speakers attached to the turtles. Their sounds worked as the cloak Gregorio III and Gregoria needed to take two body-bagged corpses out of a vehicle that had a built-in refrigerator. Yellow Cross troops doused the mini pavilion in gasoline, threw flaming matches at it to start the fire that gradually raised it to ash. Under Gregorio and Gregoria's orders, they zipped the body bags open to reveal Roscoe Sr. and Sky lookalikes in combat uniforms. The corpses were the ones that had the grisly injuries that the Nunez kids would discover upon exiting their bunker. After the pavilion became ashes, troops spent the third day and night blowing up, burning, damaging, and defacing the court how lowly vandals would as Roscoe and Skye were taken to the prison they were now attempting to break out of. That battle viciously progressed on, and so did Gregorio and Gregoria's presentation. It didn't 
take Roscoe Jr. long to realize that his mentally dulling pain was a result of the liquid's deplorable malodor and not caused by his mind imploding. Roscoe Sr. and Skye also found this out when the same indigo shower was given to them, but they developed a tolerance to it that their son didn't have. Why the liquid affected them and the other Nunez kids differently had everything to do with what the presentation revealed next. Gregoria yelled that Roscoe Jr. and his siblings were right to believe that their parents lied to them all those years. Calling nine of the birth certificates exceptional forgeries, she used a little flashlight to make the amorifrican seals reflect an anti-fraud pen to deal almost clear marks to the papers and grinded her fine nails against each surface. Gregoria even ran the documents through a foolproof printer-like machine that weird to her that each one was real. She wondered how many limbs Roscoe Sr. and Sky paid to buy nine forgeries that could be made only at the vital statistics register of Bromelia. Gregoria then remembered an incident during a previous presidency where numerous machines responsible for creating the certificates were stolen from said department, an egregious embarrassment that further solidified a fate that had been sealed months ago. The register contracted Bromacalco to concoct the only inks that wouldn't react to a special clear liquid when sprayed on. They successfully lobbied Congress to make it a felony to use and possess both chemicals outside department grounds. Gregoria sprayed that liquid on the certificates, changing the boring inks on nine of them to ones with more life than a 70s disco, the document in Roscoe Jr.'s name being the lone non-reactor. The color changes were just what she had thought, adding that the presentation's next part will expose Roscoe Sr. and Sky's motive behind their lie. Gregorio butted in his say that when Adeline, McKinley, Nicola, Consuela, Hudson, Gilly, Isidro, and Cornette do have a parent in common, but will let the forthcoming story reveal that person. Using their cell as a shield, Roscoe Sr. and Sky sprayed prison troops like yellow jackets that kept on coming almost as if they were running to their deaths on purpose. Things for the Yellow Cross went from bad to worse when more of Roy's Black Hornets swarmed in. Some of Gregorio Jr.'s troops tried sneaking out of McCray Beach but were harshly arrested or rapidly neutralized. And come the following dusk, the Black Hornets ran their Yellow Jacket enemies out of town, hurting them at or near the prison. Holding off their prisoners well, Roscoe and Skye found that their ammo was getting low, intensifying a nervousness that wanted the Liberators to hurry up. Over the night before, they tried 
digging themselves out of their cell and into the outside, six feet in front of it as their guards slept. Three hours in and twenty feet down, those two hit two machine guns and more boxes of ammo than either could count thirty times over. Roscoe and Skye heard a rocket race at them and jumped onto the hole they dug up in time for their ears to ring at its obliteration of the cell. They clenched their mouths and noses shut to prevent raining debris from accumulating in their lungs. Once the explosion mostly settled, Roscoe and Skye looked up and saw troops surrounding them with guns drawn, lusting over the honor of ending a pair of supposedly unkillable war heroes. From an office far away from McRae Beach, Onofre Jr. announced that Gabino's husband-wife annihilators were through, advising them to accept their downfall or endure a slow but sure demise. Lere interrupted him to yell that no one in the cross forgot about the kidnappings that the quote-unquote war heroes perpetrated, especially Gregoria. Onofre couldn't grasp how Roscoe and Skye conned the Lobos into giving away the nine they freed from that dump their enslavers called a palace. He rebuked them for robbing Wynne, Adeline, McKinley, Nicola, Consuela, Hudson, Gilly, Isidro, and Cornette of childhoods that would have molded them into upstanding nationalists. Sky asked Onofre if he meant to say slaves, as that was all pawns like him were, adding that he's inexpendable Gregorio will eventually throw in the garbage. He said that was where she was wrong, explaining that his leader valued all his subjects and vice versa. Lere added that Gregorio brought her and her husband power and riches beyond what either could even comprehend. Onofre equated his and his wife's lives before joining the Yellow Cross to a legacy on life support that saw its heartbeats weaken by the day. Lere added that she, her husband, and their regulo were wasting their lives away to please an establishment that sucked Bromelia's self-worth bone dry. Roscoe pushed her and Onofre to keep living that lie because they'll soon pay it back in blood when Roy comes to call. Larry yelled that over her and her husband's dead bodies will that happen, warning that hell itself will rage if their lives come under threat. Told by Roscoe that she and Onofre had and will do nothing, she dared him and Skye to prove it if they had the guts to do so and stomach to live with the consequences they cause. Skye and her husband wouldn't be able to respond thanks to the 48 grenades that cumulatively flattened the prison. With Onofre and Lere abruptly cut off the guards surrounding her and Roscoe decided to kill them on the spot, but they'd end up 
getting gunned down by the Black Hornets. This scared the Yellow Jackets, who survived being run out of McRae Beach, herded at the prison and having it collapse onto them into surrendering. Roy's slightly green scowl said it all as he watched fighters from the enemy side come out with their hands up. His boundless hatred for the Yellow Jackets aroused his thirst for revenge on them, increasing in desperation as he uncloaked the brutality that occurred. An associate of Roy's handed him a register from the warden's office that listed the 1,800 who were deported to the prison after the initial massacres, but for a number that high, Roscoe and Skye were the only two they found alive. However, as he and company made their way onto a dirt slab a mile north, it became clear that the flat was a mass grave for the other 1,798. And when a black hornet asked the survivors what happened, Roscoe mournfully looked down with Sky and answered that some things were better left unsaid. Roy refused to pressure the couple into talking as he knew that deep down both wanted to confide in him what they went through but weren't mentally ready yet. Bit by bit, like quicksand, Roscoe and Sky stood from their hulking grief by telling themselves that their kids need them more than ever. The acquaintance in Roy wanted to catch up with them but didn't bother trying because of how inappropriate it was for a time such as now, believing he'll have all the time in the world for that later. Sky broke down while begging him to help her and Roscoe find their babies, giving him the court's coordinates. Shaken up by her plea, Roy assigned one of his more experienced platoons to escort the couple back to their home, assuming it still exists. Considering the court's seclusion, getting there undetected was plain sailing, but Roscoe and Skye's hearts sank at the devastation left, yet they had hope that their children were still in the bunker. The couple had their escorts raid said shelter and search their home as a whole, but only to learn that the Nunez kids were gone. It also didn't help to see that night had fallen or feel the bone-dry winds insultingly blow dust and burnt char on their faces or eyes. With one fear now realized, it made Roscoe and Skye think of two that were worse, their children being executed and them having their brains washed by the regime. A Prus Blue Robin cut their dreading short by landing in front of them with the face of a male person that delivered them something urgent. Roscoe and Skye took the rolled-up paper out of its mouth, read it, and found that it contained the coordinates of the castle their kids were being held in. Two troops that helped Gregorio III and Gregoria transfer the Nunez kids had an epiphany that drowned them in a remorse that obligated them to free their prisoners or try to 
at the very least. They each fed a robin one drop of blood they pricked out of their index fingers, showed it their castle's coordinates and those of the court. The bird interpreted the former as a starting point and latter as its destination, holding rolls of both in its mouth. It knew where it flew from, the way to hold its messages, and exactly how to get to the court. The robin handed Roscoe and Skye the break they were looking for as they now had a chance to not only rescue their kids, but make Gregoria pay too. It turned its back to them and divinely took flight as if it was to report to its senders at once the couple's message that time was of the essence for them as well. Now that Roscoe and Skye had the castle's coordinates, they knew how to get there, which they did in five hours instead of six. When the destination finally came to view, the couple expected a fight unlike any they've previously won. Roscoe and Skye understood that Gregorio and Gregoria will spare no life in making sure their kids remain under the Yellow Cross's ghoulish embrace. In the night's small hours, they and the platoon with them surrounded the castle and were devastated to see it void of any people, vehicles, or even electricity. Refusing to believe that another dead end had been hit, Roscoe, Skye, and their troops ran all over the yard and inside. The blood in two of the infirmary beds and fading malodor from the hole were omens that sickened the couple on top of the nausea they were already feeling from the hours Dave spent escaping the prison, making their trek to the court and darting for the castle. What Roscoe and Skye fought was another dead end turned out to be anything but when a tape recorder was found sitting on the warden office's main desk. Its sticky note telling the couple to play it flew triumph through their veins, but had a hesitation on the end that made the two fear what they'd find out. Choosing certain closure over blissful ignorance, Roscoe and Skye took a deep breath, counted to three, and pressed play. Gregoria told the couple that by the time they find this recording, their kids will have completed their purifications. Her repressed yet pleasure-filled chuckle sent chills down their spines that were sharper than syringes and at a Kelvin less than one. Gregoria told Roscoe and Skye not to think for one second that any of the ten were dead, crippled, or even harmed, as they're perfectly fine and in her custody again. She swore on the regime that her desire to change that did not exist and had every intention of having the couple and kids meet one last time. Gregoria went as far as telling them the coordinates of where she and the ten were at and repeated them thrice more. She made that same 
promise with regard to letting them reach that destination, and that only herself, Gregorio, and the kids will be present there. Gregoria recommended that they come as two and not one more if they didn't want to encounter complications. She ended her recording by wishing them happy trails because she and her brother will most certainly enjoy awaiting their arrival. Against the platoon's agreed advice, Roscoe and Skye double-handedly hasted out of Desierto del Sureste and nine miles into Costa de la Grande. The coordinates they got from Gregoria led them to a small city so quiet that the winds' whistles echoed. None other than Huttonfield, Costa de la Grande, it was in surprisingly fair shape despite not bearing witness to any human activity for quite a while. But the noon of July 14th ended that drought with two raindrops, Gregorio and Gregoria standing in front of an imposingly historical statue on a roundabout's central island at the center of downtown, eating up every bit of the mostly cloudy skies that fully, partly, or didn't block the sun, those two lobos were shiveringly eager for their idea of a knees up to set about thinking of the years they've waited for this. Stopping 20 feet from the Huttonfield city limit sign, Roscoe and Skye exited the rugged truck, stared straight ahead, and firmly held hands. They recalled what Larry said about them being kidnappers as shame and regret tried making them turn back, failing only because they knew and were willing to give the whole story. Creeped out by their walk through Huttonfield, Roscoe and Skye's brains crafted horrible thoughts regarding what Maeve happened there. Those images getting more graphic and tragic the further into town they got. On a once densely populated street, they took a sharp right, finding themselves ten feet away from Gregorio and Gregoria. It was as though Roscoe and Skye had reached the top of Satan's tower and laid eyes on him at last with a readiness to freeze his land over. Gregoria was pleased to see that the couple took her word for it and came without backup, adding that she and Gregorio also have just each other to rely on for help. Demanded by Roscoe to tell him and Skye where the kids were at, Gregoria told the ten to come on out and show their new selves. And one by one, Roscoe Jr., Wynn, Adeline, McKinley, Nicola, Consuela, Hudson, Gilly, Isidro, and Cornette emerged from behind the statue with stairs that had no souls. And as fate would have it, those looks that greatly upset Roscoe and Skye marked the start of a fateful 
back and forth. And that was the Indigo Showers. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.